Thank you for tuning in to Living Life with Purpose, a ministry of Florida Bible Church in Miramar, Florida. At Florida Bible, we believe that life is preparation for eternity and hope this message will be an encouragement and blessing to you. More information about Florida Bible can be found at www.floridabible.org. We're friends of God. That's a huge thing to be able to say. It really is. We started talking a few weeks ago, a new series that we're entitling, It's No Big Deal. We're talking about this pervasive attitude that is sweeping through our politically correct world and our our world of tolerism and postmodernism that basically says, you know, it's up to you. Your your reality is your reality. There's no absolute right. There's no absolute wrong. It's, It's no big deal, the lifestyle you live. It's no big deal, the decisions you make. It's no big deal how you conduct your business. It's nobody's business but yours. Now, last week, we kind of transitioned that thought into the world of religion. And again, in this very politically correct world, in this world that uh, is, is full of postmodernism and tolerance and, and uh, religions, all are viewed as equally the same. All are viewed as equally the same. It's no big deal what religion that you follow. I mean, you follow one, you follow the other. It's the, the important thing is, is that you follow a religion and that you become a better person. If we all become better people, then we are going to be able to uh, have a better world to live in. But, you know, it really is a big deal. What we do. The Bible warned us about this. The Bible said Paul wrote to his little preacher apprentice, Timothy, in the book of 2 Timothy 4.3, and he warned us that this day was coming. He said, the time will come when men will no longer put up with sound doctrine. Instead, in order to suit their own itching ears, in other words, in order to, to be uh, more compatible with the lifestyle that they want to choose to live, what they'll do is they'll gather around themselves teachers that teach that, so that they don't feel guilty and, and, and they feel comfortable. And because of that, they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, how do we know which ones are truth and how, which ones are myth? Well, the Bible gives us guidance in that too. John, the disciple of Jesus Christ, and in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, in, in verse 1, he says, test the spirits to make sure they're of God. And then he goes on to say, how can you recognize the spirit of God? And he answers the question. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. In other words, not that just there was a historical Jesus, but that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus had an incarnation. He came down and he wore the flesh of mankind, and that everything that the gospel speaks about Jesus, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, basically saying anybody that doesn't uphold that eternal plan of God's is not of God. Now, our strategy in the rest of this series is going to follow where we left off last week with Jude 1, verse 20 through 23. First thing we're going to do is we're going to build ourselves up in our holy faith. As we begin to look at some of these other world religions, we're going to learn more about our religion and why we believe what we believe and why we think what we believe is correct. Then, once we kind of get there, we're going to be more equipped to answer the second part of this biblical strategy, and that is to be merciful to those who doubt, to snatch others from the fire and save them, and to others show mercy mixed with fear. Now today, we're going to turn to our Jewish friends and talk about 
their relationship and our relationship with them in the world. And I want you to know right off the bat that this is not going to be a series that slams other people's religion. This is going to be a series by which we can understand what they believe. Pastor Jim shared a great uh, uh, quote with me earlier, and it goes like this. We need to look through the windows so when we speak, we will speak with more clarity as we pass through the door. Look through the windows so we speak when we walk through the door. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get an idea of where they're at and who they are. Now, in approximately 33 AD, one single event rocked the very foundations of Judaism. Behold the man. Crucify him. Isn't it enough? Look at him. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Speak to me. I have the power to crucify you or else to set you free. You have no power over me. Except what is given you from above. Therefore, it is he who delivered me to you who has the greater sin. If you free him, governor, you are no friend of Caesar's. You must crucify him. horrible but that event marked the final 
rejection of the nation of Israel, of Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. Instead of embracing Him, they shouted out, crucify Him. Just five days earlier, as He rode into Jerusalem, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet because of the influence of their religious leaders, five days later, they were demanding his death and a horrible death by crucifixion. So how has that impacted our friends, the Jewish people? What consequence is there of that event? Well, in order to reach out to our Jewish friends, we first have to understand their position from a Christian standpoint, from a biblical standpoint. Not something they would agree with necessarily, but when we talk to them, we need to understand their relationship with God today. You see, when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, a major shift in their relationship with God took place. Jesus foretold this to his disciples while he was still alive. In the book of of Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 20, Jesus sitting with his disciples said this, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this, look what he says, is the time of punishment in fulfillment of what has been written. Jesus foretelling of God's response to his rejection by the nation says a time of punishment is going to come. He goes on to say, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. And Jesus' words were fulfilled some 40 years later. When the armies of Rome invaded Judea and invaded Jerusalem and sacked the city and killed men, women, and children and completely tore apart the temple of God to such devastation that history records that not one stone was left connected to another. They totally obliviated the temple of God. Subsequently, Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. And it has been ever since. And and look what he says, though. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This time of punishment is going to go on until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, what's he talking about? Well, in order to understand that, let me show you another scripture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6, God is speaking to his children, his chosen race, his children people, Israel. And he says, for you are a chosen people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. In other words, God, of all the people living on planet earth, chose to work through them, to use their nation for his glory. Now remember, in the Abrahamic covenant that we looked at last week, God had a purpose for that. Wasn't that just God liked this particular people group other than other people? He called them so that they could be a blessing to the other nations of the earth. Now how was that supposed to work? They were supposed to embrace such a unique religious system 
and have such a unique relationship with God Jehovah that God could bless them and by God blessing them all the other nations that were pagan nations would look at God's blessing on them and be attracted to God Jehovah not Israel but to God Jehovah that was the position they were supposed to fill but instead historically they began to get puffed up in this idea that they were the chosen people and ultimately they rejected their Messiah. Now look at what the Bible says in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2.9. Now, Peter is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Gentiles. He's speaking to the modern church of Jesus Christ. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you see what's happened? God has now shifted his use of a selected chosen people off of Israel and now he has put it on to the Christian community, to the Christian church, to the Gentiles. He has removed their position as his chosen people with a chosen purpose and now he has put that purpose and that privilege and opportunity onto Christians. Now, remember though, it's only for time. It will continue this way until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is not forever. You know, sometimes we as Christians can look down at Jewish people and say, you, you murdered him, you crucified him, you rejected your Messiah. And we can actually look down and think that God has abandoned them and God will never work with them again. But listen to me. God still loves his original chosen people. And God isn't finished with them yet. In fact, when the time of the Gentiles does conclude, the Bible says that God's full attention is going to return to his original chosen people. And God will fulfill all the eternal covenants that he promised them. More to come on that idea. We also need to understand their perspective. How do the Jews perceive that their relationship with God has changed? Well, let me first and foremost say this, that they don't think it's changed at all because of what happened to Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with it. They, they, they don't see that they had done any wrong. However, they feel and they sense and they know that something significant has changed. After the temple was destroyed by Rome, the Jews were scattered out among the whole Roman Empire, just like God and Jesus had, had predicted to his disciples would happen. Once that happened, the Jews no longer had a temple to offer their sacrifices, a key component for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. It was one of the two major parts of Judaism, the temple sacrifices and obeying the law of Moses. Now they didn't have a place to do that any longer. The Romans had obliviated it and scattered them all over the known world. And so what some rabbis did is they got together to salvage and reconstruct a Judaism without a temple. They had to kind of rebuild the whole thing. What are we going to do now? How are we going to remain faithful to God as God's chosen people since our temple has been taken away? Now, a Jewish scholar, Richard Saracen, described it this way. The destruction of the sacrificial system in 78 AD was obviously a devastating blow to the traditional Judaic world. 
Rabbinic Judaism significantly preserves the morphology of the defunct temple cult, its concern for order, punctiliousness, and repetition, and applies it metamorphically to the daily life of the Jewish people and the individual Jew. Now, what does that mean? He goes on to say, well, sacrifices cannot be performed anymore because there's no temple. They can be evoked and performed symbolically in word and deed through study, through observance, observance of what? Of the laws and prayer. So from their perspective, not because of Jesus, but because of Rome's sack of the temple, everything has changed. Now, one of the two major components of their religious system is gone. And so they have now come up with rabbinic Judaism, which now substitutes these acts for the sacrifices. Now, what does Jewish worship look like today? Now, let me disclaim right here. I am not an authority on Judaism. I, I will tell you that. I have done research. I have tried to be honest, and I've done everything I could. to What I share with you will, will be accurate. But you've got to understand, too, that, that Judaism is a very complex organism today. There are four kinds of Judaism. There's Orthodox, Conservative, Reformed, and Reconstructionist, and they're different. All of those are different within Judaism. So what I want to share today are some general principles the first thing that you got to note is that the recitation of prayers is the essential characteristic of Jewish worship today. That's the essential aspect. In fact, the observant Jew, that Jew who is, who is serious about continuing to live their faith, is required to recite three prayers daily and more prayers on the Sabbath and also on special days. Now, those prayers include the Sha'rit, the morning prayers, the mincha, sometimes called the minha, in fact, more often called the minha, those are afternoon prayers, and the ma'ariv, or the arvit, the evening prayers. Then on Saturday morning, and on special holidays, they recite the musa. Now, in order to understand kind of what these are, let me take one of those prayers. The amadah, which is recited daily, twice a day, in the morning and the evening prayers. But what I want you to see in the Amidah, these 18 benedictions that they recite daily, twice a day, is what they are praying for. They're praying for the restoration of Zion. Now, not only the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, which happened in 1948, but the restoration of Zion as a world leader, as a world power, as it was in the days of Solomon, in their glory days. They're also praying for the rebuilding of the temple, why? So that they can resume the sacrificial rites and go back to the way God originally established their religion, back from the tabernacle through the two temples. Now, first characteristic then, to understand how Jews worship today is the recitation of prayers. Very important. Now, another degree is the observation of holidays. There are certain Jewish holidays that they're supposed to observe. Now, the ones that are most common to us, number one, Passover. That, of course, commemorates the exodus out of Egypt. When, when they put the blood on the doorpost and the last plague and the firstborn of all the people in, in Egypt died. And God even told them when they left Israel, uh, or Egypt through Moses, that they should commemorate this. They should stop and, and commemorate this every year. They have a Seder meal and, and some other celebrations and prayers that commemorate. It usually happens around our time of Easter. 
Then there's Rosh Hashanah. That's the Jewish New Year. Now, the Jewish New Year is not like our New Year. It's not like uh, you know December 31st and, and we're having parties and there's whistles and all that kind of stuff. Rosh Hashanah is a much more solemn and reflective time. When, when Jewish people take this opportunity to reflect back over the past year of how they interacted with people and how they interacted with God and be, begin to contemplate what changes might need to occur. Now, this is closely coupled to Yom Kippur, which is their day of atonement. Now, you know, you know how Christianity has, has A, B, C, D Christians I talk about all the time? Do D Christians come at Christmas and Easter? Well, the nominal Jewish people go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah in Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah just occurred a couple weeks ago. Now, Rosh Hashanah initiates a group of days, sometimes referred as to the days of awe or the high holy days for Judaism. Now, what happens on Rosh Hashanah, according to Jewish tradition, is that God inscribes for every Jewish person their fate for the coming year. God sets out the plan that he has for them based on their, their previous year. Then there is a time of high holy days for reflection and, and, and all that that goes on. And then Yom Kippur, by the end of Yom Kippur, God seals that fate for the coming year. So on the day of Yom Kippur is the culmination of all these days of Oz where they're reflecting and, and they're looking at their life and they're reevaluating themselves. On Yom Kippur, it's not uncommon for them to spend the entire day in the synagogue. Not just doing three prayers, four prayers, five prayers. And they're praying for forgiveness and they're praying for atonement from God. And at the end of Yom Kippur, for those who have faithfully entered into this, their sins have been atoned for and their fate has been altered from what it might have been. Very important holidays. And so it kind of reflects back to the yearly sacrifice that the, holy, the chief priest would make in the Holy of Holies for the sins of the nation. This is to change that fate that might have been recorded. Now, Hanukkah is, is kind of a secondary uh, holiday for them, and there are other holidays I didn't list, but Hanukkah is the, the festival of lights that commemorates the time that, that the uh, Maccabees overthrew Antiochus IV and were able to recapture the temple, and, but there wasn't enough temple oil to keep the lights that are need to be burning 24 hours a day burning, and so God miraculously allowed the oil they had to last for eight days until kosher oil could be found to replace that, and so they celebrate the miracle that God had given them in this period of time. Now, in addition to those two things is the study of the Tanakhs, which is the Hebrew Bible, and rabbinic writings. Now, those are important in order to stay in compliance with the Law of Moses. Again, the two chief responsibilities in Judaism from the, its founding were what? The sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins and observance of the Mosaic Law. Why are these things important? They're resources to help prepare for heaven. Kind of. Now, what do you mean kind of? Now, you have to understand that the Jewish people have a totally different outlook on eternity and what life is all about. Judaism is primarily focused on life here and now, and not so much on the hereafter. Rabbi Simmons, I found kind of sums up what they believe on this in a very, very modern, contemporary, understandable way. Indulge me. From Judaism's perspective, our eternal soul is as real as our thumb. In other words, they believe in afterlife. This is the world of doing, the one we're living in right now. 
And the world to come is where we experience the eternal reality of whatever we've become in this life. Do you think after being responsible for the torture and deaths of millions of people that Hitler could really end it all just by shooting himself? No. Ultimate justice is found in another dimension. So they do believe in judgment, at least most strains of Judaism do. He goes on to say, When a person dies and goes to heaven, the judgment is not arbitrary and externally imposed. Rather, the soul is shown two videotapes. Now, I don't think he means to be taken literally, but he's just using modern language so we get the idea. What happens when a person dies? They go into judgment. Two things happen. The first video, he calls, this is your life. And every decision, every thought, all the good deeds and all the embarrassing things a person did in private is all replayed without any embellishments. It is fully bared for all to see. He says that's why the next world is called Olam HaEmet in Hebrew, which is the world of truth. Because there we clearly recognize our personal strength and shortcoming and the true purpose of life. So the first one is this is your life. You get a review of your life. And everything is revealed for all to see. Boy, that will send a chill up your spine, won't it? The second video depicts how a person's life could have been. The next part of this process is reflecting how your life could have gone if opportunities were seized and better choices were made and and if the potential was actualized. Now look what he says. This video, the pain of squandered potential, is much more difficult to bear than even all the things that you did in your life revealed to everyone. Think about that. But at the same time, it purifies the soul as well. The pain creates regret, which removes the barriers, enables the soul to completely connect to God. Now, how does this really function? Not all souls merit Gehenna. Now, what is Gehenna? Gehenna would be the Jewish alternative to what Roman Catholics teach about purgatory. It's an intermediate place to go. It's a place where people who aren't quite good enough to get into heaven go to spend a time to be purified so ultimately they are allowed into heaven. Now, according to Jewish tradition, people would not spend any longer than 12 months in Gehenna before they would be allowed to leave and go into heaven. It is for people who have done good but need to be purified. They're not quite ready to be in the presence of God, so they go through a period of purification in Gehenna. Now, a handful of people, of course, are too evil for Gehenna, and they're punished eternally in hell, Hades. Now, Pharaoh would be an example, obviously. I'm sure Hitler would be included in the group also. So what about heaven? He goes on to say, heaven is where the soul experiences the greatest possible pleasure. We kind of believe that too, don't we? The feeling of closeness to God. Of course, not all souls experience that to the same degree. It's like going to a symphony concert, he says. Some tickets are front row centers. Other are in the back in the bleachers. Where where your seat is located is based on the merit of your good deeds. In other words, giving, charity, caring for others, and prayer. But you got to understand, see, we're thinking, okay, it's a religion of works. No, that's not how they look at it. It's a religion of being a good person. 
And if you become a good person, ultimately good things will happen to you. See, the existence of the afterlife, Rabbi Simmons continues, is not stated explicitly in the Torah itself because as human beings we have to focus on our task in this world. Understand, it's this world that they're concerned about. Though awareness of eternal reward can also be a very effective motivator to doing it right in this world is where they're coming from. So see, some of the things that we evangelical Christians would usually go out and try to win people to and talk to them about Christ aren't going to work in the Jewish mind. They will, not, they will not resonate with their minds and their teaching and their thinking and their philosophy of life. We're all about eternity. We say here at Florida Bible Church, our life is what? Preparation for eternity. Islam would say the same thing. But Judaism doesn't. Judaism says, be a good person. Become the best person you can. And ultimately, because you were a good person here and you put your focus on that, ultimately, in the end, you'll have a good turnout. So, preparation for eternity, from their standpoint, good deeds are eternally consequential. But they're not the reason we do them. We don't do them because we want to prepare for eternity. We just do them because it's the right thing to do. The Mosaic Law, then, identifies what God considers as good deeds as opposed to bad seeds, or deeds. So embracing the law is a key to identifying the good deeds that will result in becoming a good person, which will result in a good personal ending overall. That's kind of the idea that is expressed. Now, how do you get there? Three important Jewish resources in one's quest to become a good enough person to ultimately live a good life and then ultimately have a good personal ending. Those are the Tanakh, the Mishnah, and the Talmud. Now indulge me for a moment, okay? The Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible. It is comprised of three sections. The first section is the Torah. See, you've all heard of the Torah, haven't you? Knock your head. Yes, we, should, we know the Torah. And we think the Torah is the Hebrew Bible. No, it's one section in the Hebrew Bible. It is the first section, the section that contains the writings of Moses, which we today would call the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That is the law where the law of God is found. The second section is the Navim. And that is literally the prophets. That's what that means, the prophets. And it includes the books of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then there's a subsection, which is the Tritsar, which is the minor prophets. Books like Hosea and Obadiah and Amos and Jonah. And, and books like that. The same minor prophets that are minor prophets to us in our Bible. Then the final section is the Ketuvim. Those are the writings. That's what that means. The writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations. They're the poetic works in the Bible. Now, I want you to notice and take key. What do you notice about their Bible, the Tanakh? Yeah, it's the same as ours, right? It's our Old Testament. It's the same books. Now, they're in different order, mind you. If you've got an English version of the Tanakh, you would be confused for a while trying to find where the books are because they're not in the same order. But they're the same books. Now, this is important. Make a mental or make even a physical note that their Old Testament scriptures are the same as our Old Testament scriptures because this is going to become a key in a little while. Now, Again, probably of the three sections of the Tanakhs, 
The most important section would be the Torah. Why? Because it reveals the law of God. And observing the law is a critical part of the Jewish religion from its very foundation when they came out of Egypt. Now, the law can be a slippery slope. Now, understand that the law is not the Ten Commandments. See, people think that's the law. No, there's 613 identified laws in the Mosaic Law. Ten Commandments were just the first ten given. Now, let's just take the Ten Commandments. Though. Let's make it simple, okay? Let's take the Fourth Commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. God says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy unto the God. And what's one of the other characteristics? Don't work on the Sabbath, right? Okay, but when you're starting to live and trying to keep compliance to the law of God, then you've got to start asking some questions and say, well, what, what constitutes work? How do I know what God thinks work is? I mean, the obvious going to work in your job that day would be obvious, but how about things like, can I carry my child? How about things like, can I cook a meal? How about things, can I write in a journal? What constitutes violating the Sabbath of God? Now, because all of these things, and when you get into legalism, and when you get into trying to satisfy God by works, this is where it goes. And so what happened is over time, rabbis, talking about these things, would orally pass on to generation to generation the answers to those kind of questions. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus said, you Pharisees, you, you, you tithe on your mint and your cumin and your deal, but you neglect the greater things of the law, like mercy and justice and, and faithfulness. See, they had got into this minutia even then. It got worse after the destruction of the temple. So ultimately what happened is persecution came on the Jewish people. And a lot of these, these, these uh, religious leaders were being killed. And so the Jewish uh, community got together and said, we've got to do something to preserve these things in writing. So the first was the Mishnah. It was a collection of all those oral traditions. It is uh, second in authority only to the Tanakhs. And basically, it reflects the debates by a group of rabbinic sages known as the Tanaim. And they did all this between 70 and 200 A.D. According to the Jewish system, they say C.E. So this reflects and it answers some of those detailed questions. Now, that wasn't enough because there was some confusion in the Mishnah. And so that was followed up by the Gemara, which was written to expound more on the Mishnah. So they could really understand what violating all these different commandments are. Well, over time, that got a little confusing. So they built the Talmud. And the Talmud is a collection of the Mishnah and the Gemara. In fact, sometimes the Talmud is called the Gemara. And along with additional commentaries on how to properly observe the law, they put all this together. Further expounds, again, on the Mishnah and the Gemara. Now, understand the Talmud. Six, or there's six orders of general subject matter. They're divided into 60 or 63 tra- tractates of more focused subject compilation. Now, what does that mean? There's actually two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and there's the Babylonian Talmud. There's two different Talmuds. They cover six general topics in all. Each tractate is divided into chapters and there's 517 total chapters. Now, what does this look like? What does this deal with? Let me give you an example. Let's look at the Talmud. Track Sabbath. Further explanation of the Sabbath. Chapter 1. Mishnah 1. 
There are two acts constituting transfer of movable things over the dividing line of adjoining premises based on biblical statutes. In other words, on the Sabbath, there's two things you need to consider when you're handing off something or receiving something from somebody because you don't want to break the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. The two acts are, however, increased to four on the inside and to a like amount on the outside of the premises by the addition of rabbinical statutes. How so? A mendicant, a mendicant is a person of a religious order, stands outside and the master of the house inside. Okay, here's the picture. He's given an example now. A mendicant passes his hand into the house through a window or the door and puts something into the hand of the master of the house. Or he takes something out of the master's hand and draws it back towards himself. In such a case, the mendicant is guilty of transfer and the master of the house is free. In other words, in this situation, it is the mendicant who has broken the Sabbath, the master of the house is okay. On the other hand, if the master of the house passes his hand outside and puts the thing into the hand of the mendicant, or takes something out of the mendicant's hand and brings it into the house, the master of the house is culpable and the mendicant is free. It just depends on, on which direction this is happening. If the mendicant extends his hand into the house and the master takes something out of it, or puts something into it which is drawn to the outside by the mendicant, they are both free. Neither one of them has violated the Sabbath. Mishnah 1. Chapter 1. Now, following this in the Talmud is the Gemara's writings on what the Mishnah said. And as I read this one, this first one, Mishnah 1, track 1, Sabbath, there were like seven or eight pages of Gemara explanation of what the scribes in the Mishnah had recorded. When I was thinking about this, this verse just jumped into my mind. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so anyone can boast. Do you see where legalism takes you. Do you see where this idea that you can possibly earn your way into heaven goes? How do you know? Now a lot of people are still trying to do that today. They're still trying to be a good enough person. Well, if you want to try it that way, then let me suggest that you go ahead and buy the Talmud because they've worked on this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And by the way, the English translation is 73 volumes large. 73 volumes. I looked it up on Amazon.com. They have a sale going right now. You can get it for $2,099 plus shipping. And you can calculate the shipping cost on 73 heavy volumes of work. But the point is, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we don't live under that captivity? Aren't you glad that Jesus came and took care of that? And we no longer have to worry about those kind of issues. And we don't have to be captive to those kind of issues any longer. Our way has been paved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, another question that many of you probably have is this question. Are the Jews still waiting for the Messiah? How many think they are? How many think they aren't? You're both right. You're both right. But know this, even for those who believe Messiah is still to come, they do not believe it's a divine figure. 
They believe Messiah will be a human being with great charisma, great power, great wisdom, great righteousness, but he is not God. He's not the Son of God. He has nothing to do with God. He is a human leader who will come on the scene. See, that's why they rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going around saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. They didn't like that. They didn't like that. And so they crucified him. So it depends on what track of Judaism you're embracing on whether you believe Messiah is still coming. For example, if you're an Orthodox, then you believe in a personal Messiah, Mashiach, that's coming from the line of David, as we believe Messiah did. If you're a conservative Jew, then your teaching varies. You kind of still support the idea that, that Messiah, Mosheik, might be a personal person, but you also leave room that it's not really a person, but really it's a Masonic error, or Messiah uh, era of time, dispensation of time. Now, if you are a Reformed Jew, you believe in a future Messianic era rather than a personal Messiah. They don't believe a personal Messiah is coming anymore, but there is a time coming that reflects Messiah. So they have altered the traditional prayers that they say every day to praying for redemption rather than for a redeemer, and they've removed prayers for the restoration of the house of David because they don't think a personal Messiah is coming, so it doesn't matter. Then you can get to the ones who are most non-Orthodox, and those are the Reconstructionists, and they reject both ideas of a personal Messiah or a Messianic era. Instead, they teach that human beings can help bring about a better future world. In other words, the power is our hands to create a better world, and we do have that ability. And if we'll all just get together, and we'll listen to each other, and we'll sit down with each other, and we'll respect each other's view, then together the human, the humankind, mankind, can make a better world, kind of a messianic world. Now, quickly, for those who do believe in the coming of Messiah, this is what it's going to look like, the messianic age. The Messianic age is when the Jews will regain their independence and will return to the land of Israel. The Messiah will be a very great king. He will achieve great fame, and his reputation among the Gentile nations will be even greater than that of King Solomon. His great righteousness and the wonders that he will bring about will cause all people to make peace with him and all lands to serve him. Nothing will change in the Messianic age, however, except that Jews will regain their independence. Rich and poor, strong and weak will still exist. However, it will be very easy for people to make a living, and with very little effort, they will be able to accomplish very much. It will be a time when the number of wise men will increase, war shall uh, not exist, and nation shall no longer lift sword against nation. In other words, it's going to be a time of peace. Finally, say it will be ruled by Messiah, a righteous and honest king, outstanding in wisdom and close to God. In other words, a spiritual person, but he is not God. Do not think that the ways of the world and the laws of nature will change. This is not true. The world will continue as is. The prophet Isaiah predicted the wolf shall live with the sheep, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And of course we believe that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom of Christ. But he goes on to say this, however, is merely an allegory, meaning that the Jews will live safely even with formerly wicked and hostile nations in the messianic time. Now, I put on the back of your notes other things about what Messiah will do when he comes for those who think he's coming. Now, when will he come? According to the Talmud, the Midrash, and other Kabbalistic mystic works of, of Israel, this is important. The deadline by which Messiah is to appear 
is no later than 6,000 years after creation. Isn't it interesting that Orthodox Judaism would, would agree with, with many evangelicals that evolution is not true? That the world hasn't been around forever and ever and ever. In fact, they say Messiah's got to come before the world reaches 6,000 years. Look what it says. The Hebrew calendar dates back to the time of creation. They, they're on a different calendar than our calendar. The English year 2010, the year that we're living in, corresponds to the year 5770. In other words, they think he's coming soon too. We think he's coming soon. The whole thing with the Maya thing in, in 2012 and Nostradamus is works any. The whole world together senses that the end is coming. And my friends, I believe it's true. So how can you please God? That's what religion's all about, right? Okay, number one, of course, from their vantage point, convert to Judaism would help. And then commit to the daily recitation of prayers. Keep the Jewish holidays. Study the Torah and keep God's law. Pay, pray and wait faithfully for Mosaic's coming. In a nutshell, generally speaking, let me leave you with this question. How do we know that they're not right? How do we know that they're not the ones that have it right and we're the ones that have it wrong? I mean, they're, they're the original people of God. God sent them all kinds of prophets over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. How do we know that the Jewish chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't call it right? How do we know that Jesus really was the Messiah? How do we know that we're right and they're wrong? Come back next week. Thanks for listening. Here at Father Bible Church, we believe the first and most important step in life's journey is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the question is, how about you? If you haven't started this relationship, you can use this model prayer. Jesus, I do want to begin a relationship with you. I know that I have sinned against you and cannot save myself. So right now, I ask for your forgiveness of all my sins and I accept you as my personal Savior, believing that you died on the cross and paid for all my sins. Forgive me now, and please give to me your precious gift of eternal life. Amen. You can find this prayer along with more detailed information on our website at www.floridabible.org. Just click the Beginning a Relationship with Jesus button. There you will also learn more about us and find the next steps for a Christ follower. Thanks again for listening to Living Life with Purpose.